0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest alarming report from Oxfam, released as the Davos World Economic Forum of Billionaires gets underway, which finds the richest 1% of the world's people amassed two-thirds of the world's new wealth created in the last two years. Joining us is Morris Pearl who serves as chair of the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of 200 high-net-worth Americans who are committed to building a more prosperous, stable, and inclusive nation. He's the author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer, and a signatory of a letter to Davos attendees by the Patriotic Millionaires and the Age of Extreme Wealth, Tax the Ultra-Rich. Then we'll examine why Germany's Chancellor Scholz is still vacillating over sending arms to Ukraine, even after Ukraine's president shamed him in a speech at Davos, crying out for urgent action, saying, the time the free world uses to think is used by the terrorist state to kill. Joining us is Thomas Berger, professor of international relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics, international relations, and comparative government in East Asia and political culture. He's the author of War, Guilt, and World Politics after World War II, and we will discuss the upcoming meeting Friday of 50 defense ministers with the Ukraine contact group, chaired by U.S. Defense Secretary Austin, at which Germany's new defense minister will be put on the spot. Then finally, we'll look into why prominent figures on the right, like Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk, are apologists for Putin, as well as many on the left who excuse Putin's barbarity because of NATO expansion eastward, and speak with David Satter, a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who has been one of the world's leading commentators on Russian affairs for more than four decades. He was the Moscow correspondent of the Financial Times from 1976 okay. to 1982, and has written several books about Russia, including Asia Delirium, The Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union, And the less you know, the better you sleep, Russia's road to terror and dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. In December of 2013, he was expelled from Russia, where he had been accredited as a Radio Liberty correspondent, becoming the first U.S. journalist to be barred from Russia since the Cold War. We will discuss his articles at the Wall Street Journal, Putin wants Ukraine back in the USSR, and are we willing to see Russia as it really is? And joining us now is Morris Pearl, who serves as the chair of the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of 200 high net worth Americans who are committed to building a more prosperous, stable and inclusive nation. He's the co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer, and is a signatory of a letter to Davos attendees by the Patriotic Millionaires End the Age of Extreme Wealth, Tax the Ultra Rich. Welcome to Background Briefing, Morris Pearl.
1: Great, great to be on your show.
0: Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Morris. And this Davos meeting is happening, and of course, in the context of a recent uh, release by Oxfam that finds the richest one percent of people around the globe amassed almost two thirds of the new wealth created in the last two years. A total of forty two trillion in new wealth was created since twenty twenty, with twenty six trillion, or sixty three percent of that, being amassed by the top one percent of the ultra rich. According to this new Oxfam report, and the remaining 99% of the global population collected just 16 trillion of new wealth. So um, this is alarming, but not surprising. And I know this is the work that you've been trying to do to level the playing field and deal with income inequality, which is clearly rising. So what do you make of what's happening at Davos? I mean, what is the problem with these people meeting there, wringing their hands about all the world's problems, but they don't seem to understand that at the heart of it is that the rich don't pay the taxes.
1: And that's exactly why the rich are getting richer and richer and richer, because the rich are just accumulating more money. And every year, investors have more money and so make even more money the following year. That's through the magic of compound interest. And sure, Davos is a great place to have a meeting, but I don't really see anyone proposing anything to actually do something about this. What we're afraid of is as the rich get richer and richer and richer, and everyone who's actually working for a living with taxes deducted from their paycheck every single week is just falling farther behind. And pretty soon, we're going to have just a few rich people that own everything. And then that's no way for the rest of us to survive. And there'd be nobody to shop at our businesses and nobody to pay money to all the things that we invest in. And it's not going to work. You know, They tried that in South Africa when I was a teenager. It did not end well for the rich people.
0: So you have a representative, right, Phil White from the Patriarch Millionaires at Davos?
1: Yes. Yeah, one of our members.
0: And there's also Marlene Engelhorn of Tax Me Now, who's a millionaire and a signatory to the letter. She's saying that the whole world, economists, the public activists and millionaires alike, can see the solution that's staring us all right in the face. If we care about the safety of democracy, about our communities and our planet, we have to tax the ultra-rich. And yet our decision-makers either don't have the gumption or don't feel the need to listen to all of these voices. It begs the question, what or who is stopping them? So, Morris, do you have an answer to that question?
1: I think our political leaders have just spent so much time talking to rich people who fund their campaigns and fund their activities, they've kind of forgot about everyone else. And yeah, it's easy to talk to some rich investors. Oh my God, me pay taxes. That's like a a great inconvenience. And they kind of listen to that. And after a few years, they kind of actually believe it because at least here in the United States, part of our problem is also that the rich people, people like me, have so much more access to our elected officials, our legislatures, than do most people. You know, several members of Congress have called me just this week, you know, three in the last day, just to talk about their campaigns and things. And, oh, what is is important to you, Morris? And what do you think? And not even people who represent me. Well, one of them did, but... And they kind of forget. And even the best of them, they kind of listen so much to wealthy people who can make big campaign contributions and they kind of become very familiar with the, with the, I don't even want to say problems, but the wealthy people think they have problems and they kind of forget about everyone else's problems. And so, oh, we can just make some change in the tax law to make this easier for you. And you can just pay whatever you want in taxes and send in money whenever you feel like it. Oh, we don't want to have Money deducted from your checks—that would be unreasonable for rich people to be treated like you know everyone else who works for a living. And after a while, they just try to—they be- just start to believe it.
0: Well, but the first thing that the new House Republicans did, just taken over after 15 rounds of voting to get their speaker McCarthy elected, was to defund the IRS to take all well, but 8 billion from the 80 billion that had been allocated under the IRA the inflation reduction act and that's extraordinary and Isn't along that just with
1: ridiculous? that ridiculous they exactly. don't think that rich people should pay taxes i mean they're all in favor of enforcing rules for workers you know who pay taxes and maybe get an earned income tax credit or a child tax credit or something they do not believe That rich people should pay taxes. And that's just how the Republicans are.
0: Well, Kevin McCarthy, of
1: course.
0: But Kevin McCarthy, of course, in order to get the votes, had to make all kinds of concessions. And one of them was to the Georgia Congressman Earl Buddy Carter that he would hold a floor vote on a version of Carter's idea of a fair tax which means you abolish all income tax and just have a sales tax. And, of course, that is so skewed to help the wealthy and, and hurt the average folk. I mean, if you think
1: about it, it's absurd. A, a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. Every single dollar they make, they spend. And so all of their income would be subject to this sales tax, whatever you want to call it. But wealthy people save a lot of money, so they pay a far lower tax rate than they do now. I mean, yeah, only sales tax—that would be great for the rich people in terms of paying less taxes—and really bad for everybody else. I mean, I think it's an absolutely horrendous idea. I really do. I mean, I think it's a terrible idea.
0: Sam so, Morris, what do you think is going to happen in, at Dallas in terms of? I mean. One of the things that I find troubling is that the wealthy or the ultra-rich not paying taxes, they've substituted that social obligation through philanthropy. So you have people like the Facebook or Meta, it's now called, CEO, Zuckerberg, saying he's going to give away all of his money. And the same with the uh, Amazon founder, Jeff Bezos. He's going to give away all of his money, at least he says he is, and he gave one of the first things he did was give $100 million to Dolly Parton. And Dolly Parton's a lovely person. But, you know, I don't know that that's going to really do much about income inequality or help the world in any real way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm all for philanthropy. Philanthropy's great. People want to give away their money, they're welcome to give away their money. I have nothing against giving away money. However, that does not replace the necessity of making some decisions about how our national resources are used democratically by voters through their elected representatives. That's why we elect people to make these decisions. I would prefer all of the people having a say by voting rather than only the rich people deciding how money should be spent. You know, I said I can easily raise, I don't know, millions and millions of dollars to build a concert hall and put someone's name on top but we also need things like sewage treatment centers. We also need poor, the schools in the neighborhoods where poor people live. We need a lot of things that are, that are not easily done through philanthropy. And they need to be done collectively by the people since no one can do it themselves. We, no one can build their own sewage treatment centers and people can't build their own schools. And we have a word for that, it's called taxes. And we have a word for organizing it. It's called government. And all that means is the people of our nation doing something together that they can't do each individually. And that's how our country is supposed to work. So just
0: in closing, do we have to overturn the Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, that's based upon the idea that money equals speech?
1: I mean, I think that's part of the problem. I mean, honestly, we've had a problem before that. And even if we do overturn it, we'll still have a problem. But yeah, I think that it's a major problem that rich people are allowed to spend essentially unlimited amounts of money on politics because you get such a return from it. Spending a few million dollars can change the course of our nation and make hundreds of millions of dollars for the people who've made those investments. And so, yeah, for a lot of people, the best way to invest their money is in politics by electing people that will lower their taxes and help them make money even more. And that's a problem, and we have to change it.
0: Well, Morris Pearl, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you, sir. Great to talk to you, Mr. Masters.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Morris Pearl, who serves as chair of the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of 200 high-net-worth Americans who are committed to building a more prosperous, stable, and inclusive nation. He's the co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Made the Rich Even Richer, and is a signatory of a letter to Davos attendees by the Patriotic Millionaires, and the Age of Extreme Wealth, Tax the Ultra Rich. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining why Germany's Chancellor Schultz is still vacillating over sending after Ukraine, even after Ukraine's president shamed him in a speech at Davos, crying out for urgent action, saying, the time the free world uses to think is used by the terrorist state to kill.
2: Oh, the grocer, though we have fun. Tax collectors, getting closer, still we have fun. There's nothing sure. The rich get rich and poor get poorer In the meantime, in between time Ain't we got one?
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Berger, Professor of International Relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics, international relations, and comparative government in East Asia and political culture. He's the author of War, Guilt, and World Politics after World War II. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Berger.
3: Glad to be with you.
0: So, Thomas, is the residue of war guilt still afflicting Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor? I mean, he is prevaricating over the delivery of these Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. And he was at the Davos summit today, where he's asked about why the hesitancy. And then, shortly thereafter, Ukraine's President Zelensky made a passionate speech at Davos, saying... The world must not hesitate to help his country because he knows that the Russians are preparing a massive offensive in the spring and that'll be make or break for the survival of his country. So what's going on with Schultz? I mean, why does he have this appearance of being somewhat like Hamlet? (laughs)
3: <laughs> to be, to be or not to be, to intervene or not to intervene more strongly. Well, um, I think uh, you know you pointed to German guilt, and and that is a factor. In fact, you know I just was looking uh, at the German Foreign Ministry um, website where they are talking about Russian-German relations in general. The very first thing they have there. Um, is, uh, you know, Germany must never forget that it was responsible for the death of 27 million Soviet citizens. That includes many Ukrainians uh, during the Second World War. So it's not just all of Schulz, but Germans in general do have a sense of, of moral responsibility um, vis-a-vis Russia. Uh, but that sense of responsibility is, um, first of all, tempered, by a um, recognition that what's going on in Russia is uh, what Russia is doing in the Ukraine is an atrocity. Human rights um, abuses are being well reported on in Germany and met with horror. Um, And also uh, the other thing, though, that one can't overlook is that there are certain central strategic concerns or lessons that the Germans have drawn out of their history. I mean, uh, twice in the 20th century, German-Russian rivalry, both before World War I and uh, World War Two, were very much responsible for plunging the continent in the two bloodiest wars in its entire history. And there's been long the point of view among German political elites across the political spectrum. And it's a view which I'm sure many ordinary Germans, um, to the extent that they really want to think about foreign affairs, um, share, which is that you need a healthy or stable relationship with uh, Russia, between Russia and Germany uh, moving forward in order to have a stable European security order. Um, That's a sort of central instinct which the Germans have. Now, I think lots of other countries share that, basic point of view. But I also think that the Germans have uh, another sort of background factor on their mind um, uh, experience of the cold war. And uh, during the cold war, especially the later stages of the cold war um, during the era of detente, the German um, government under Chancellor Willy Brandt, also a social Democrat like Olaf Scholz reached out to Russia um, and pushed what was called Eastern policy, Ostpolitik, a policy of engaging with Russia on arms control, on human rights, and economically. In fact, that was in that time period, in the early 1970s, that Germany began to invest in Russia and begin to import energy, oil and gas from Russia. And that policy of um, detente and of Ostpolitik, of engaging Russia, was very much supported by the United States. Uh, and it wound up having a strong support across the German political spectrum, both on the left and among the social Democrats and on the right among the Christian Democrats. So strong was this consensus and the political calculations behind it that even after the Cold War, turned hot again after 1979 in particular, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh, already under President Jimmy Carter and then even more strongly under President Ronald Reagan, the United States moved towards a hard line. Germany supported a hard line vis-à-vis the Soviet Union, supported the deployment of a new generation of nuclear weapons in uh, Eastern Europe, the uh, Pershing II and the um, uh, Cruise missiles uh, over enormous protests, by the way, at that time period. And the Germans also increased their defense spending. But at the same time, they continued Ostpolitik, they continued political engagement, they continued to import Russian energy, they continued to believe in the long run we have to have dialogue with the Russians. Now, what we all know how the Cold War ended. Right, I mean, Gorbachev basically said Uncle or whatever the Russian equivalent Vanya is uh, for that, and and we you know we had a de-escalation of the conflict and um, a, a remarkable transformation of the European scene. Why did that happen? Was it because of Western resolution and strength, or was it also because of? um uh, ability to engage russia to engage with russia in terms of and lure it out of the soviet union pull it out of its um sort of soviet shell that it had uh, retreated into and you can say it was probably a combination of both but which do you emphasize yeah and germans tend to emphasize that history of ostpolitik as engagement as being an essential complement to deterrence and the policy of being strong. Now, we have a new defense minister, and I think you probably wanted to mention this. We had a rather interesting development uh, in the last few days. Um, Christina Lambrecht, who uh, was a fairly ineffective uh, foreign uh, defense minister in the, um, the German government, um, was forced to step back. Uh, the superficial reasons why she stepped back had to do with issues of self-presentation. She made a New Year's address with fireworks going on in the background in which she addressed the tragic condition in the Ukraine. This was the latest in a series of really quite small, I think, sort of cosmetic gaffes. But really what's underlying it was the sense that we need to have somebody who's going to be stronger in the office of uh, defense minister. They picked a, um, a politician, a seasoned veteran, um Boris Pistorius uh, to be the new um defense minister uh, pistorius has up to now actually had very little to do with defense he's um he's uh his main focus is on internal politics immigration police matters internal security but not so much uh, this issue but i think scholz wanted to have a competent reliable figure Uh, at the helm. Now, Pistorius himself very much reflects the evolution of recent evolution of German thinking. Uh, It wasn't just a few years ago, you know, he was uh, talking in 2018 about the importance of continuing to engage Russia, Um, uh, even though, you know, after the Russian invasion in 2014 of eastern Ukraine, when the Russians supported independence forces, they annexed and directly invaded Crimea. There was quite a debate about how should one balance right, engagement and deterrence uh, vis-à-vis Russia uh, then. And uh, Postorius, the new defense minister, was actually more on the side of engagement. And he also, in the interviews um, at that time, directly referred back to Willy Brandt and the politic of Ostpolitik and saying how important it is to continue to engage Russia. Wandel durch Handel, or actually the original phrase was wandel durch Ernährung, that is, try to promote change in Russia and the Soviet Union by getting closer to it. Now, after the latest developments in uh, February last year with the, Soviet, uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there has been a sharp shift in German policy, and Pistorius has followed it. That is, he said, we have to now support the Ukraine. We have to support the Ukrainian ability to defend themselves, uh, to push back against the Soviet invasion, and he's been giving every signal that he now supports what's called the Zeitenwende, the sort of watershed in German thinking about uh, security and, 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 and foreign policy. Right. Yeah, yeah, turning point, exactly, watershed or turning point. But mm-hmm. the reality is that still, and if you read carefully between the lines what Schultz is saying, what Pastorius is saying, what other German political leaders are saying, is at the end of the day there's going to have to be some kind of negotiated settlement. At this between Ukraine and Russia, between the West and Russia and its supporters uh, on the sort of more global stage, and that uh, settlement—it's premature to think about it or talk about it openly. But we have to think about it. Sure. I think that's what's very much on Scholz's mind. That's what's on Pistorius's mind, um, and uh, they, have a, uh, they are thinking about how do we that is the West, but also Mm -hmm. Germany within the West. How does Germany now help Ukraine deal with this war of aggression? There's a kind of fine balance that has to be struck.
0: Right, but Thomas, if you put yourself in Zelensky's shoes, Ukraine's president, he's talking about survival. He's talking about the survival of his country. As far as Putin's concerned, what they tried back in February didn't work, and he's determined to... Do it again and do it right this time. And he's he's mobilizing and building up his forces as best he can. In the meantime, of course, he's destroying apartment buildings, killing civilians, etc. So, and the outgoing the outgoing German defense minister was of course totally turned deaf. She celebrated sending five thousand helmets, or other NATO countries were sending ammunition and war material and fuel, etc. And then, of course, she recently said that what's happening in Ukraine has made her grow as a person, as though the <laughs> suffering and destruction and death and mayhem in Ukraine had helped her as a person. So she won't be missed, but Pristorius, the new guy, he's literally being thrown in at the deep end of the pool. because tomorrow, Thursday, he meets with the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, mm-hmm. and then on Friday... He, along with 50 Western defense ministers, will meet with the Ukraine contact group at Rammstein Air Base in Germany at a meeting chaired by the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. So do you think that maybe Schultz is being hesitant about saying anything about the Leopard tanks? Because the problem with the Leopard tanks is, and the Brits have already sent the Challenger tanks in as a signal to the Germans, you know, get off the dime, but... The restrictions on the leopard tanks. The Finns, Finland and Poland, want to send leopard tanks to Ukraine, but they can't because Germany has to sign off on that. So do well, you I think mean, I... on Friday after this meeting something might happen to change Schulz's mind?
3: Oh, I think that this is already in the cards and has been for a while. One of the other factors that we also have to understand with the German situation And this again is very much reflects the particular lessons that the Germans have chosen to pick uh, to uh, draw from their own history. Is that on the one hand, right now, everybody wants Germany to do more militarily, and they want, you know, Germany's unflagging support uh, in terms of equipment, money, uh, personnel to the extent that that's uh, needed and desired. Um, And uh, on the other hand, when Germany gets too active on defense issues, you also tend to get a backlash against Germany. And there's that kind of um, always in the background of many Europeans' minds, this kind of suspicion of of Germany um, and this fear of potential German power. So one of the things which the Germans have all the time tried to do since they joined NATO in the 19. forty eight is to well since they began to plan joining NATO in 1948 they always um, emphasize we can't be out on front on these issues they are always looking for other countries to give them cover so they they act very much unlike Britain unlike France right other large European powers they always want to act within a multilateral framework. And they always talk about living up to our alliance responsibilities. Um, Now, the Germans have been even more cautious than probably they needed to be. And some of that has to do with some of the factors that you're talking about. Um, There are still many, many people inside of the, especially on the left end of the German political spectrum, who um, are fundamentally uncomfortable with um, Germany playing any kind of military role at all. I mean, the metaphor that they always used to use when they talked about you know, supplying weapons to countries in conflict is like pouring, pouring oil, gasoline on a fire. Um, uh, but that point of view has gone out of the window uh, now. But there's still a lot of reluctance. But I think that uh, with, uh, with the pressure which is coming especially out of Washington but also being pushed further by other European uh, allies Britain, you know, Sending the Challenger. Um, uh, I imagine we're going to be talking about M1 Abrams um, as well. And also, but the particular issue that you mentioned, the weapon systems is, uh, you know, one of the best weapon systems, it's an old technology, but reliable and still very good is the Leopard Tank and there are different versions of the Leopard Tank. We don't need to get that thick in the weeds here. Um, and that's being produced by Germany. And Germany has applied that to many countries in Europe, including Poland. Um, and uh, But they have to get permission from the German government before they're able to re-export it to another country, in this case to the Ukraine. Uh, the Polish government, um, what was his name, uh, Matuez uh, v- Vicky, um uh, last week was trying to force the German hand, saying that they have um, a, a stock of older leopards that they want to supply to uh, the Ukraine, and the Germans were dragging their feet. I imagine there's going to be some kind of action. They're going to probably at least give permission uh, to the to other European countries, beginning with um, uh, Poland, to export the leopards to Ukraine. I think the, already the next issue is clearly um, you know, beyond. So I think this is going to be a done deal, is my guess. The only question is how far are the Germans going to go in terms of supplying the leopard? German defense industry um, uh, representatives are already saying, yes, we can produce more leopards. There's a whole kind of debate about do we have, do they have enough leopards in stock to meet their own self-defense needs and live up to their responsibilities of the German military, the Bundeswehr. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I think already, I think that they're moving in that direction Uh, The Germans are moving incredibly slowly because the bureaucracy inside of the the German defense ministry, especially the procurement uh, system, has been really, uh, it's scandalously uh, ineffective for for years. But the next question, of course, is what Ukrainians also need is air defense. And um, uh, we're talking about Patriot missiles, we're talking about uh, electronic warfare, we're talking about potentially supplying older um, fighter planes to the Ukraine to fight against the Russian um, uh, air assault. And all of that will have to be somehow done in a way that does not trigger the Russians from uh, using this as an excuse to escalate further, uh, we also—we I mean, just had Lavrov make a speech in which he compared um, uh, the West is planning what the West is doing against uh, Russia is uh, the equivalent of the Final Solution, the annihilation of the Jews by Nazi Germany, um, mm. right. uh, and all of these things, of course, in the Russian imaginary, in the Russian mind. This, you know, they're waging this war, ridiculous as it as seems to us, against Ukraine because they're fighting against neo neo-nazi- against Nazis are persecuting ethnic Russians in the Ukraine. I mean, it's kind of insane with Vladimir Zelensky, who's you know himself Jewish right. and had family members. But well, that's that, what they've been the arguing Germans at the
0: UN and etc. I mean, that's that's Putin. I don't know. I think he's got most of the Russian people. In the propaganda bubble, unfortunately, believing that garbage. But those are the realities. But Thomas, we've pretty much run out of time. Um, okay, I'm sorry. No, um, no but, worries. Blatt, but good I, to, talk, I, to I, talk to you. It's good to talk um, to you. Germans, know, and your bottom line is that you think after this Friday meeting things might change.
3: I well, no. What I think is going to change is yes, the Germans are going to be, um, you know, supply doing the next thing that's necessary. I am su- sure that down the line they're going to again. Elevate, right? What we're basically doing in the West is we're sort of doing a, what is called salami tactics, you know, doing, increasing bit by bit. I think the Biden administration used the metaphor of we're boiling the frog, mm-hmm. um, right? Bit by bit with, uh, to increase the pressure on Russia to make it more bloody without creating a escalation. And the German situations, they're going to do this, but they're going to continue to support as we move forward. They're going to support us, but they're always going to be dragging their feet. So, um, yes, we're going to see more developments. uh, But, again, uh, the sort of fundamental pattern that we've been seeing for the last year is the Germans are not going to be taking the lead.
0: Well, Thomas Berg, I thank you again for joining us here today.
3: Good to talk to you, as always, Ian.
0: And again, I have me speak with Thomas Berger, who's a professor of international relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics, international relations, and comparative government in East Asia and political culture. And he's the author of War Guilt and World Politics After World War II. We can take a brief station break back looking into why prominent figures on the right, like Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk, are apologists for Putin, as well as many on the left to excuse Putin's barbarity because of NATO expansion eastward. Воюет все, Германия продолжается
2: наступать. Но напрасно, да все заранее, трудно братанами воевать. Ой, эх, 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 наложили проклятым немку. здорово! U.S.S.R.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Paris, France, is David Satter, a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who has been one of the world's leading commentators on Russian affairs for more than four decades. He was the Moscow correspondent of the Financial Times from 1976 to 1982, and has written several books about Russia, including Age of Delirium, The Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union, And the less you know, the better that you sleep, Russia's road to terror and dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. And in December of 2013, he was expelled from Russia, where he had been accredited as a Radio Liberty correspondent, becoming the first U.S. journalist to be barred from Russia since the Cold War. And he has articles at the Wall Street Journal, Putin wants Ukraine back in the USSR, and are we willing to see Russia as it really is? Welcome to Background Briefing, David Satter.
4: Oh, Thank you. I'm glad to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, David. And I'm trying to figure out why there's a kind of pro-Putin caucus in the House led by the Freedom Caucus and why you have prominent Fox News personalities, uh, the leading one being Tucker Carson, who in many ways parrots Kremlin propaganda and Elon Musk as well. So since I'm my politics are more sympathetic to the left, I kind of understand what the left is about, even though I don't agree with the the idea that somehow America is to blame or NATO is to blame for what's happening in in Ukraine because of NATO expansion. So do you have any thoughts on either why the left and the right in this country or some of the left and and the far right in this country support Putin?
4: I do, actually. Uh, I think the reason is because they're not looking at Putin. Uh, there, uh, and this has been, uh, a given in America's relations, uh, with Russia over the years. And it was true in the Soviet period as well. Uh, certain Americans, uh, view Russia through the prism of us political issues. And if they think that the other side, uh, takes one position, then they take the other. Uh, What's actually going on in Russia or uh, in the region is uh, secondary to put it mildly. I don't think uh, either of the camps that you referred to have any deep knowledge of Russia, of the war, of the stakes, nor do they feel obliged to give it any 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 serious thought, even, you know, supposing they would be capable of that. Uh the uh, on the, as far as tucker carlson is concerned i ha- haven't had the pleasure of watching his broadcasts but i hear hear about them and uh, my assumption is that uh, this has been something of a success for president biden uh he has successfully supported ukraine uh with the military assistance and that's much to his credit And since uh, uh, Tucker is opposed to Biden, then he's opposed to uh, Biden's policy on Ukraine. And that means he's opposed to Ukraine. Uh, As for the uh, the left uh, wing opposition to the war, well, this is kind of a given, really, uh, on the left side of the political spectrum, That any military action undertaken by the United States has to be colonialist, aggressive and unjustified. And I think that there, too, we have the same syndrome involved, and that is the tendency to view the Russian situation uh, through the American uh, through the prism of the American political situation and uh, uh, an unwillingness to really look at what's going on.
0: And what explains the support for Russia in the global south?
4: Well, you know, Russia is a huge exporter of raw materials. And uh, very, and it, you know, it, it, the, I mean, the global south, the, the, the very phrase, the global south, encompasses quite a lot, a lot of different countries, uh, many of which, uh, don't play a big role in the global balance of power. Many of which are focused on their own internal problems, of which they have many, and uh, in one way or another are dependent on their economic relations with Russia. I think to answer that question in any detail, we have to go country by country, which I assume we 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 don't want to do at the present time. But uh, as you know, it the reality is that. That the countries of the global south will not be decisive uh, in determining the outcome here, uh, except insofar as they help keep Russia afloat economically. What's more important is whether Ukraine, for example, is going to get uh, offensive weaponry from the uh, NATO alliance, from the countries of the NATO alliance. That will be much more important in determining the outcome of this conflict.
0: And we'll know more about that on Friday when the Ukraine contact group of 50 nations meets at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany along with Germany's new defense minister. So right. And yeah, chaired, chaired yeah, by yeah, uh, U.S. Yeah, defense absolutely. Secretary Lloyd Austin. But yeah. why is it then that the American left and the global south don't see Russia as a colonial power? The Soviet Union itself was a colonial power. In fact, Vladimir Lenin said that the proletariat has no fatherland and that the Soviet Union was the Russian Empire uh, recreated on the basis of socialism. And then if you add to that after World War II, of course, you had uh, the addition of uh, the Warsaw Pact countries and the Baltic countries, which were clearly colonies.
4: Well, occupied territory. Yeah. uh, I think that... You know, Russia was not a 19th century colonial power. Uh, and many con- if we're talking about the global south, many of the countries that we're referring to, you know, were subject to British, French, Portuguese, uh, Dutch, or in- Belgian imperialism. And
0: Spanish, not- too. Yeah.
4: Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but not uh, but not Russian. Uh, um, Russia's. Uh, uh, imperialism expressed itself in a different way. And, uh, right now the conflicts, uh, only affect them, uh, peripherally. Uh, the, the victims of Russian aggression are not in the global South. They are at the moment, uh, in the countries of the former Soviet Union. And so, I, uh, I mean, without being, uh, you know, deeply knowledgeable about, the the global south uh i can i can presume that uh many of those countries are not uh, fully engaged in the conflict and not uh because it does, it can, it doesn't concern them directly i mean that would be that would be normal and uh and almost to be expected
0: so let's turn to the central issue i think um, yeah. and particularly your piece at the Wall Street Journal, Are We Willing to See Russia as It Really Is? And you have been long reporting on what happened in 1999 and when apartment buildings were blown up in Moscow and then later in Riazan in the south yeah, where FSB it, yeah. officers were caught with explosives, which is about as brazen as it gets. One of the things I've found fascinating in your Wall Street Journal article, are we willing to see Russia as it really is, is that the day before these buildings were blown up, Bill Clinton had a phone conversation with Boris Yeltsin where Boris Yeltsin introduced him to Vladimir Putin and basically said to Bill Clinton that Mr. Putin would be the next president and, quote, I am sure you will have a good relationship with him. And then, of course, the next day, Putin blew up the buildings in order to prosecute a war in in Chechnya and make himself visible since he was a nobody. And then suddenly overnight, he went on television and talked about flushing the Chechens down the outhouse. So it's all unbelievably cynical. But again, it gets back to what frustrates me is that people don't want to see, including the United States government don't want to see who Putin is and therefore if you understand who the person is then you understand what, what his policies are. It's the same thing with Adolf Hitler. If you understood who he was and you read Mein Kampf, then you wouldn't know what he's about and it wouldn't have been a surprise.
4: Yeah. The uh it should not have been a surprise. And the the terrible thing is that the government and I know this because I've filed Freedom of Information Act requests and received relevant documents, uh, was well informed uh, about the suspicions that the buildings were blown up by Russian uh, intelligence agents themselves, specifically to blame it, blame the atrocity on the Chechens and use that to launch a new war. And with all that information that we had, and there was a lot of it, we 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 didn't raise any questions. We decided to say nothing, and in the process became complicit. Uh, this is something that is going to have to be investigated, uh, if not by politicians, certainly by historians, because the 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 decision not to raise the question of the Riazan incident, where. FSB agents were caught putting a bomb in the building, in the basement of a building in which 400 people lived, that decision uh, basically uh, guaranteed that Putin would become president. We'd had that, that a terrorist would be in charge of the world's largest nuclear arsenal. And it probably, and it set the stage for the present war, not right away, but, uh, it set in motion the events that led to the war that's going on right now.
0: And, of course, 300-plus Russians were killed in those bombings. But is it the ascension of Putin, was that a continuum? Because my understanding is that the KGB ran the country behind the scenes, particularly, and Dropoff did, when through the Brezhnev period of stagnation. And you had this brief interregnum with Boris Yeltsin, and then Putin came back, and now... The security services, are, along with criminals, are, which are kind of interchangeable, are in control of Russia totally. I mean, every Russian business has an FSB officer sitting outside the CEO's office uh, with a gun and a badge.
4: Well, uh, this is uh, this requires a much more detailed uh, description of what happened, and and there are many nuances. I think that the the point is that. The corruption under Yeltsin was so extreme that it required uh, the FSB to protect it. And uh, the apartment bombings were the expression of that. Because Yeltsin and and anyone connected to Yeltsin could never have won a free election, they had to resort to provocation. And the masters of provocation uh, were, and the persons with experience in provocation were the FSB, and having uh, committed terrorist acts against their own people in order to elevate uh, Putin into, you know, uh, into the presidency, they didn't just disappear and give up power. They, you know, they, Putin used them. He was part of them, he, and they were entrenched, and uh, they, they, uh, they have been running the show ever since.
0: So, did Putin invade? Ukraine in part because he thought Biden was weak because of what happened with the the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan.
4: Yes, undoubtedly. I mean you used the word messy, but it could not have been anything else. Uh, the uh, the betrayal of uh, of Afghanistan demonstrated to Putin that the United States wasn't willing to make any uh effort on behalf of a close ally. It's often forgotten that one of the things that uh, Ukraine was aspiring to when it was clear that it couldn't become a member of NATO was the status of most, most valued ally or most trusted ally. I've forgotten the exact terminology, but that was the status that Afghanistan had. And after it became clear, uh, how little that status was worth, uh, Ukraine dropped its efforts to acquire it. But uh, this, this favored nations—I
0: think you're talking about,
4: right? What's this?
0: Favored nations—is that what you're doing? No, about?
4: I don't. Know. Not well. Yeah. Most favored nations is a trade. Sure, that's it? right. But something yeah.
0: along those lines.
4: No, I think it's most uh, closest non-NATO ally. Okay. Uh, But I'm not sure if that's the exact term, but that's the meaning. And uh, obviously that the message was also uh, uh, clear to to Putin. Uh, He probably bet on the U.S. not being willing to uh, to come to Ukraine's aid with 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 the kind of military support that Ukraine has received. And there there's justification for that because President Biden, when he was vice president, when he served in the Obama administration, was an outspoken opponent of providing javelin uh, anti-tank weapons to uh, to Ukraine at a time when Ukraine was fighting a war in eastern Ukraine with uh, Russian proxies. And, and with regular Russian troops, which intervened periodically. Sure. So, yeah. so, uh, so they had, so, so Putin had, and uh, he had reason to believe that the West was weak. And of course, they're also very, following very closely. Uh, and this is important to bear in mind, the internal political animosity in the US, the kind of atmosphere of hatred, the concentration on local on internal issues racial gender and uh, other types of uh, of conflicts all of that can lead someone like putin to believe that his uh, aggression will not be answered
0: but just in the last few minutes though david i'd like to get an understanding of why Putin doesn't recognize the reason he's failing so far in Ukraine is because of, he runs a corrupt mafia state and the corruption has permeated both the security services and in particular the military. And you just have to look at Prigozhin, uh, the way he's trying to take credit for everything that's hap- good that's happening and he's at loggerheads with the, with the Russian military itself. The problem is, as far as I could see it, is that Putin exports gangster government. That's what you have in Belarus. That's what you had when he took over Crimea. That's what you have with these proxies that he has in Luhansk and Donetsk. And the people in, the, in Eastern Europe surely want, and the Ukrainians in particular, surely want democracy and the rule of law. They're sick of, of gangsters and people looting their countries. So do you think he gets that?
4: Well, probably not. Uh, and I don't even think he, he thinks in those terms. Uh, well, I'm sure he, he doesn't.
0: But I'm, I'm Yeah, just...
4: he's, 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 his concern is to, to strengthen his hold on power and the hold on power of those who are associated with him. And uh, he may at some level understand that the corruption has weakened the army, but the corruption is the way in which the system is run. So he doesn't question it. He just uh, assumes that he can throw in more and more uh, human bodies and uh, and that sooner or later enough people uh, will be killed that uh, he can stabilize the front. Uh, he, the, the, the idea of, of of fighting corruption is not something that, that that's even going to occur to him, because his system runs on corruption. If it has adverse consequences, if the army doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't function as well as it should because of corruption, well, he has the opposition of mobilizing uh, people and uh, throwing them into the battle and and uh, uh, in unlimited unlimited quantities.
0: So just in closing then, uh, David Satter, why doesn't the critics on the left and the right, both here in the United States and around the world, understand that uh, people don't want gangster government? I mean, the gangsters are taking over around the world. You've got Xi in China, Putin in Russia, Erdogan in Turkey, Orban in Hungary. You name it, they're all over the place. And my understanding is that at the end of the day, People do want some kind of representation, some form of democracy, and the rule of law. Nobody wants to live in a mafia state.
4: Oh, and I think that would be true of 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 the people on the left and the right in the U.S. who are now coming out uh, in opposition to Ukraine and in opposition to our support for Ukraine. But uh, uh, they don't... Uh, they don't think that deeply. Uh, they don't stop to ask themselves, what are the consequences of a Russian victory and Ukrainian defeat? Uh, and they don't want to think about it. Uh, this is this, you know, American politics is very local. It's very superficial. Uh, and of course, everyone, uh, Feels they have uh, they have an opinion and that their opinion ought to be heard, uh, and uh, without uh, an obligation really to to base that opinion on something real. So this is the situation we have. Obviously, it's bad for the uh, you know for the political atmosphere in the country. Uh, but so far, at least, these these groups. Uh, have not had decisive influence. We can just hope that they won't uh, and that the common sense of the majority will prevail.
0: Well, David Satter, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: Well, thank you. It's glad to be with you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with David Satter, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who has been one of the world's leading commentators on Russian affairs for more than four decades. He was the Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times from 1976 to 1982 and has written several books about Russia, including Age of Delirium, The Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union. And the less you know, the better you sleep. Russia's road to terror and dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. And in December of 2013, he was expelled from Russia, where he had been accredited as Radio Liberty correspondent, becoming the first U.S. journalist to be barred from Russia since the Cold War. And he has articles at the Wall Street Journal, Putin wants Ukraine back in the USSR. And are we willing to see Russia as it really is? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
2: An song about the, of the brave In this land with man love.